0: Welcome to The Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Ace Arcus to talk all things in the world of anarchy and libertarianism, all that fun stuff. Really appreciate Ace joining me today. If you're a fan of The Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals, 502-386-0978. We're going to head to the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster line, where I am now joined by Ace Arkist. Ace, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you? Doing very well. Really appreciate you joining me. For those of The Kelly Patrick Show, listeners who do not know... Uh, the world of Liberty Twitter, has it really is its own little world. And Ace Archist is one of the more prominent uh, figures within the, the world of, um, I don't know if you want to say libertarianism, or in your case, more so yeah. anar- anarchism, whatever ism uh, you want to describe it as. But Ace, I appreciate you joining me for the show today. I was referred to have you on by a couple different people. You always are known for having really uh, you know, good takes online on a lot of different topics. If it's all right, Ace, could yeah. you introduce yourself to the Kelly Patrick show audience? How did you become a Archist? Uh, and what can you tell us about
1: yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first I would like to say, well, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor. And, uh, yeah, so I, I sort of like got started at, I joined Twitter a couple of years ago, but I've been a libertarian anarchist, I guess you could say for around, uh, I guess, uh, 10 years. Um, the person who kind of like started me on this like uh, philosophical journey I guess is probably uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano on Fox News surprisingly um, Wow he, okay yeah interesting. He, uh, he was sort of my gateway drug into this whole thing. Uh, so um, I found people that led me down a path. To anarchism is Judge Andrew Napolitano. He's familiar with the Mises Institute. Um, and once you get to there, it's basically like a nexus of liberty. And you kind of find all these different like disparate thinkers and philosophers and uh, economists. And it, it's sort of all downhill from there. So he was really my jumping off point into this whole thing.
0: If we could drill into that. So you were watching yeah. Fox News, right? Yes. Ten years ago. So that, that oh, tells yes. me you were probably politically on the right.
1: Yeah. So I grew up in a very like right wing, not not super right wing uh, in the sense of like really super conservative, but general Republican uh, right wing. Um, household and Fox News one was, was on a lot uh, um, and I it, it's uh, so I certainly came from the right but I've always sort of had like libertarian in, intuitions I guess you could say um, and uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano was someone who like really spoke to me because He he's the way he talked and the way he phrased things and put things into perspective was unlike what most people on Fox News were doing at the time. So I found that really interesting. Um, so that's sort of like how I was attracted to that kind of like school of thought.
0: Ace, how about how, how old are you?
1: I'm 27. Okay. So since 2000,
0: I'm sorry, since uh, you were about 17 years old, you have really identified as a as a libertarian. You said you had some tendencies yep. toward mm-hmm. libertarianism even before you really knew what it was. But yeah. can, can you dive into that? What do you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. Well, um, libertarians basically believe, uh, in what's known as self-ownership and the non-aggression principle, right. Which basically says that you have the highest claim to your body and your property. And I have the highest claim to my body and my property. And that goes for everyone else. So, and I always kind of, um, had that intuition that's like, yeah, if people are just acting peacefully, they should be free to do what they want. Um, and sort of in that intuition, that, that sort of vein, um, so that, that was sort of, I guess, like what primed me to be open or receptive to this uh, ideology, I guess.
0: And what was it that you heard from judge Andrew Napolitano that really resonated with you?
1: I think, uh, I think he was one of the first people I ever heard call themselves a libertarian at the time. Um, and that was, uh, I think I was like 14 or 15 when I first heard him and then I began to look into it. Um, and so yeah i think uh he he first said something and he also had uh, he talked about like ron paul all the time and i obviously once you get into ron paul it's kind of all dominoes from there all all uh, leading you to libertarianism or at least knowing about it the very least um so i think it was just his his commitment to principle um that really attracted me because i've always valued like consistency as far as a principle goes Um, And I found him to be, like, very consistent. He was not afraid to, like, criticize people on the right when they did something that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have. Um, uh, So I I found that really refreshing.
0: Okay. So he opened your eyes to the world of liberty. You were 17 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, What type of uh, path did you take from there? Where where did that lead?
1: Yeah. So I I think there's always this type of thing where – you, you, there's a joke where it's like uh, first people become minarchists, which a minarchist is basically someone who believes in a minimal state, which is basically that the uh, the government should control like courts, police, and military, and that should be their sole function and nothing else. And then uh, when people asked, what's the difference between a minarchist and an anarchist, the joke is six months, right? So uh, that, that sort of kind of was similar to my trajectory where I thought, well, yeah, we, you know, let's have a, Let's sort of have this minimal state uh, and then like more and more that I read, I sort of like convinced myself out of that position by realizing that everything the state does can and has been done by private institutions in the past. And actually it's um, it's better overall if the state does not have this monopoly in the same way we wouldn't want um, the state to have a monopoly on food production or automobile production. Or basically anything, we wouldn't. We should not want them to have a monopoly on um, security and uh, dispute resolution.
0: Okay. Um, and before we move any farther, I feel just kind of my gut that many, or maybe even most Republicans, people who identify as a Republican mm-hmm. that I talk to, at least, if you talk to them, they at least have convinced themselves. That they're kind of minarchists. They they mm-hmm. believe in smaller, uh, smaller government. At least they say they do. Um, yeah. So, would you agree that that many or maybe even most Republicans are? And I'm using air quotes, but minarchists.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I know I've spoken to Republicans as well who I would consider more minarchist leaning. I, I, I'm not sure I would claim that most Republicans are minarchists, Um, they tend to favor they still they're getting a little better on this obviously over time but from my um, own perspective i still see them um, supporting like drug war policies um, to a lesser extent now and i do think that's good but i still see them supporting um, more state interventions than i think most minarchists would Um, but certainly i I think there's some republicans that are certainly leaning in a more minarchist direction which i certainly applaud
0: okay within the past um years that you have been on the bandwagon of um Mm -hmm. the 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 world of libertarianism and even more so over time into the world of anarchy yeah um who who are your prominent the the people that you look to as the the most credible sources in the world of anarchy
1: oh great question um well, I, it would be remiss of me not to mention Murray Rothbard. Um, Rothbard is kind of like the, um, the father of the modern libertarian movement, um, as it's known. And he, he was con- he's considered the first anarcho-capitalist, which is often what um, right-wing anarchists are often called or market anarchists somewhere in there. Um, so Murray Rothbard, um, anyone unfamiliar with Rothbard's work should start with um, Anatomy of the State. Um, you can find most of his work for free on the Mises Institute, mises.org. And it, it, it's one of those things where you read it. And I, I've had this experience myself and I know other people have had it too where you read Rothbard and then you can't look at the world the same way again. It's like it it really is one of these things where like the veil gets pulled off of your uh, pulled off of your eyes and you can kind of see things clearly that many of the institutions Rothbard's whole work is um, demystifying these institutions, these uh, government policies. And instead of talking about, well, what the government should do or what the government um, is, let's say, um, uh, from a conservative perspective, if they think, well, the government should, you know, uh, protect rights the government should do x y and z rothbard kind of goes through this and goes point by point and says actually the state by its very nature violates these rights that it's supposed to protect in the first place um so murray rothbard is a huge influence um, there's also people older like lysander spooner who was an a- uh, a sl- an abolitionist um a lawyer um, great work. He, yeah, I, I think this is probably, so Lysander Spooner is especially effective, I think, for conservatives to read because he wrote um, uh, No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority. And he's coming at this from like a legal perspective showing that the Constitution itself, um, it's often um, lauded as this, you know, great document. And there's certainly some good things in it. But he he sort of shows, goes through like point by point and shows that, well, this there's actually no legal authority for this document to actually impose itself. It's not like a contract, right? Where both parties would be like legally bound to it. Um, so I, I think his work, and there's also people like Benjamin Tucker, um, David Friedman, who is Milton Friedman's son, he's an anarchist. He comes at it from a more economic perspective. And I mean, so does Rothbard, but um, it, Friedman is like laser focused on the economic side of it. So the, there's a lot of anarchists and I guess, you know, the, the pantheon, um that you could say that um have they have a different flavor. So whatever whatever wherever you're approaching it from, there's probably some anarchist there for you that um, can kind of like onboard you.
0: Now Milton Friedman, of course, uh, would fall more so into the category, I guess, of being like a a, a minarchist, Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Oh yes. Yeah. And his Absolutely. son, his son David, and I guess even his grandson. Uh, mm-hmm have fallen much more into the category of actual anarchist,
1: right? Oh, yes. Yeah. David Friedman wrote um, The Machinery of Freedom, which basically breaks down, like, how would these services work if they weren't monopolized by the state? Like, how would justice and security be provided um, absent the state?
0: Okay. Uh, historically... Um the, the term anarchy or anarchist mm-hmm. has been associated more so with people coming from the left, which doesn't make a lot of sense in a lot of ways, but that's mm-hmm. just what it is. My wife, Yanni, is from Cuba. <clears throat> and so, you know, the readings that she grew up uh, being really required to read, a lot of times they would discuss, um, I guess it's a proletariat, Uh, of the worker you know uh, uh, a dictatorship of the proletariat so it was in theory no government but it just turns Mm -hmm. right back into having this workers revolution where I guess they're saying the workers become the government and I know that's specific to Marx but but is my description sound pretty accurate that historically anarchists are much more to the left and they almost have some mystic crazy like leap where they're like we we don't need a state we don't need a state we don't need Mm -hmm. a state but we do need these people to rule over us, so it just doesn't make any sense. Is, is that too simplified of a description?
1: I, I mean, I think it I think it's an appropriate summation in the sense that. Um, So, like, the Marxists in particular, right, so the the ones who really advocate for we need this, you know, um, uh, proletarian revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, and then eventually the state will just go away, right, so that's kind of how they think it's going to go. Marx doesn't even consider himself an anarchist, so I always think it's funny when um, Marxists try to, like, paint themselves as anarchists, like, just because you predict the state will one day go away doesn't really mean you're an anarchist if you're advocating for, like, domination by another group right so like i i think there's a distinction between statelessness and anarchism like you could be, you get rid of the state but if you have like uh, if there's um uh like let's say uh people ruling over you in the same way the state would but they don't call themselves a state well that's not really anarchism
0: so by your definition and admittedly mm-hmm. more so by mine too a small minority of anarchists maybe spooner mm-hmm uh Rothbard, Friedman, yeah. guys like that would fit the definition of what in our opinion is actually an anarchist uh, approach to things, right?
1: Yeah. So I, I, again, I'm a bit biased here because that's kind of like the tradition I come from. Um but I, I do and, and I'm familiar with the left anarchist tradition as well, but I I I certainly think that anarchism it, it to be properly understood or to be coherent in any sense of has to come from an individualist perspective it can't come from because oftentimes there's a distinction and you kind of see this in like uh, western anarchists versus eastern anarchists not all the time but often this is a trend where um western uh style anarchists like anarchists in the west they tend to be um what is known as individualist anarchists so oftentimes like the anarcho capitalists the market anarchists these types and then you also have the social anarchists and these are the people more likely to be left-leaning um where their basis is kind of like um engineering society in some way, even though I don't I, I think they would like disagree with how I'm framing that, but that's that's essentially in my view what they're trying to do. They're trying to engineer society to be a certain way and they have a completely different approach to like let's say uh human rights than let's say I would
0: sure it, it almost reminds me of, you know, George Bush and Barack Obama both campaigned for president on an anti war platform. Right? <laughs> yeah. They're like, hey, we're yeah. going to be anti-war. You know, it, why do we need all these wars? They were saying things, uh, their rhetoric, it, it actually mm-hmm. made made sense as far as being anti-war a lot. Yeah. But then when it comes time to implement it, they're actually extremely pro-war. And that kind of reminds me of the, the left anarchists where, where it, it, they're doing yeah. such a great job of tearing down the need. For a government, but then their solution is unfortunately a big strong government. I assume you're familiar with yeah. Michael Malice's book, The Anarchist Handbook. Oh yes, yep. Um, my question to you is, what do you think his intentions were with releasing that book? Because you read it, or I, I'm sorry, I read, I read it, and it's um, basically like a bunch of socialists. I mean, there's some of them who talk about you know doing away with the Religion and it's just setting up like communism mm-hmm. with most of these guys, <laughs> and yeah. and and there's very few of the the um, I think 22 essays or whatever the the excerpts in the book. Uh, very few of them are consistent with more of a actual anarchist um, worldview, such as what Michael Malice subscribes to himself. So I guess my question to you, Ace is Mm -hmm. what do you think motivated Michael Malice to release this book?
1: Yeah, I I think generally, uh, obviously, you know, I I can't get inside his head, but from my interpretation, uh, I think he was just trying to – promote anarchism as an ideal and show that he, there are a bunch of different flavors of anarchism, um, even ones like he would necessarily disagree with. Um, there are some anarchists so there's some anarchists like in, that are individuals anarchists. Um, Benjamin Tucker is a good example of this. So Benjamin Tucker called himself a socialist at the time. Um, Benjamin Tucker, so even though he used the word socialist, this term kind of had a different meaning in the past uh, back then. Um, than it does today, right? So um, a, a socialist back then could just it could, now, he disagreed with many other socialists who are more uh, in have more in common with socialists we would see today, which want to use the state to essentially um, eradicate certain like private industry. Uh, whereas Benjamin Tucker um, called himself a socialist in the sense that, he, he had kind of like socialist, certain socialist ideals about like workers owning the means of production, but he did not want to go about it in a way where uh, the state forced this. He wanted to, he, I think he has a quote where he wants to let the free market, essentially, uh, he, he thinks the free market, the market being completely free, will tend toward um, workers owning more mean the means of production in a general sense. Now, whether uh, people agree with that or not, or think those predictions will play out, he he was someone who's interesting because he, while he called himself a socialist, he would not have m- anything in common with like m- most socialists today who want to um, use the state. He actually has a uh, um, an essay called "State Socialism and air an- and ugh, I can't speak and Anarchism. Um, where he kind of breaks down that distinction. So there are some anarchists who might use certain terms, but I think it's always important to remember that um, it can be kind of hard reading them uh, in today's time because these terms have changed so much. But certainly there are absolutely left anarchists that are promoted in um, the anarchist handbook.
0: My interview style ace is I bounce around the, the place a whole lot, so I'm kind of ADHD and I apologize oh, for that. Oh, me too. Um,
1: no, 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 me too.
0: Um, your Twitter pinned tweet from june yes. 15th of, of last year so just over a year ago it says hashtag free ross
1: could you tell us what that means yes. sure so uh, free ro- hashtag free ross is um alluding to the person named ross Ulbricht. um ross Ulbricht is currently currently in prison he is serving a double life plus 40 sentence in prison right now. And you must, and, and when most people hear about this, they must think, Oh my God, he must be some serial like child murderer or something like that. Right. If you're serving double life plus 40, well um, it, it's unfortunately uh much more depressing because Ross Ulbricht is a first time offender and he, all of his charges were nonviolent. So Ross Ulbricht started a website called, um, the Silk Road, right? And this was a website. Ross Ulbricht is a libertarian. He uh, helped. He, he like um, helped campaign for Ron Paul uh, in two thousand eight, two thousand twelve, I believe. And he he was essentially just like a wonky nerd, like a lot of like libertarians are. Um, and he believed in what's the libertarian philosophy of the the non aggression principle, which basically says, as long as you are not inflicting aggression or, or initiating violence against someone, like force, fraud, coercion. Um, you are free to do whatever you want. Even if it involves like harming yourself through like drug use or something like that, while it may not be good, no one has a right to forcibly stop you and throw you in a cage. So he created the Silk Road website as a way where people could freely trade between e- b- with each other um, in, a, in a somewhat anonymous fashion and essentially like trade whatever they want. Now, it wasn't a drug website. People sold drugs on there, obviously, but it wasn't like made just for a drug website. It was basically like, look, this is going to be a free market. It's going to be yeah, like an e-commerce site where people are just completely free to live out a libertarian experience online. Um, and eventually, um, the story, like, I, I won't be able to summarize the story completely because it, like, the more you look into it, the worse it gets. But basically, um, federal agents, uh, ATF, or, um, uh, um, yeah, ATF agents and certain uh, certain other government officials were able to compromise the site, get into the site, and essentially, like they got all the passwords. Ross was eventually arrested, and essentially, um, he. So, I first have to say because this is very important. When the, the first thing most people think of when they hear Ross Ulbricht, or they do a quick little search online, is that Ross Ulbricht hired hitmen to kill people. Right? You hear this all the time. Anytime someone brings up Ross Ulbricht, there's going to be some person in the comments saying oh you hired a hitman to kill people well that that claim that was brought up to deny him bail it was a charge to deny him bail and it never went to court that charge never went to court in ne- the jury never indicted him on it whatsoever um all the same um and the reason they think this right so there was um anyone who's familiar with like the princess bride will kind of get this um on, on the Silk Road website, the administrators um, were people with the name Dread Pirate Roberts, right? And the Dread Pirate Roberts is essentially an alias that can be passed down from one person to the next. Now, there's um, a chat log, which again, we don't have, we can't even verify the chat log for one because obviously um, um, we have some evidence of um, officials like... Uh, uh, government officials tampering with the website they had access to all the passwords so we can't even verify this uh to be completely honest but there's a chat log that says that essentially indicates um uh, the dread pirate roberts putting a hit on someone who was trying to extort the site and like threatening to rat them out to the Feds, right? Now this was all made up. This was like a sting operation, like entrapment. Um, there was no actual person who was actually being hit. This was all like a setup um, by the government officials. Um, but the why they think that's Ross is people just assume that oh well Ross was the Dread Pirate Roberts, but there were multiple Dread Pirate Roberts, and of course that was brought up at trial, and they did the um, they did not allow any indication that there were any other like administrators on the site except Ross. So even though Ross wasn't charged with that um, in the jury's minds, it kind they they kind of made it seem like he is guilty of a lot more than what he's being charged with. Um, And that that alone should have like gotten him, gotten him a mistrial. It's a a very unfortunate um, injustice. And I, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I think one of the worst things that happened was, at sentencing, right? When he's being sentenced, he's already been charged. They gave him a kingpin charge. That's why he's uh, um, got, the, got the massive, massive um, um, sentencing. At sentencing, the judge specifically told Ross that he had a dangerous philosophy and that she wasn't sure if he had given it up yet. So she's specifically talking about his libertarian ideology um, at sentencing. Um, and talking about how it's essentially dangerous to our democracy or whatever. Um, and that is, it's it just like, I, I did like a, a not great job of like explaining the whole detail because there's a lot there, but I, I beg people to investigate it for yourselves because it's truly criminal what happened to this man.
0: This sounds consistent with what was it? There was a leaked uh, document uh, over the past couple of days that showed that. Uh, what is it the the federal government right now is trying to label um, basically libertarians as mm-hmm. and I know that's nothing new right now, but yeah um, it is it, let me see I'm looking at it it says the the FBI domestic terrorism symbols guides and as like the Gadsden flag and all sorts of yeah. basically consistent with what you're saying about Ross is um, the 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 federal government wants to make it clear libertarians or anarchists, people who don't believe in the authority of the government are the enemy of the state. Yes. Why, why is that so dangerous? I know that's a silly question. Well,
1: the, you know, the thing is, is that um, there's always like this great injustice uh, in the sense that most anarchists I know and most libertarians I know, and certainly the philosophy itself indicates this, which is that most of them just want to live peaceful lives they just want to live free of violence, right? Free of initiatory violence. They're fine with defensive violence, obviously, if someone like encroaches upon you or your property. But in general, they they want to live in a, a place or a society with a legal system that respects their, that respects their rights to their property and their person. And they want to engage in voluntary relationships and activity with other people. Um, so th- in some sense, like they're, they're like, it's not that they're opposed to violence. As I said, they're fine with defensive violence, but in all other cases, they're pretty much like peaceniks, right? they they just want to, uh, live their life how they want to live it without anyone encroaching upon them. And, uh, of course this is very dangerous to the state because obviously the state's whole business is not letting people live peacefully because the state is in a sense a parasite on productive society, Right. This everything the state has, they've stolen. Um, so whenever your uh, tax money, uh, if whenever uh, you make a, you make some income, the state says, "No, I have a right to a portion of that." And the state also says, "I get to decide how much I get to take of your money." Um, so the state's interests are completely misaligned with that of the libertarian anarchist. So from the state's perspective, it actually is a very dangerous philosophy because libertarianism would say you're not allowed to uh uh to keep acting like a parasite and engaging in uh violent action against peaceful people. So that's why the state finds it essentially dangerous. It's not because it is like, you know, going it's not like anarchists or libertarians are going around like just like brutally murdering people and street or anything like that uh it's actually if you look at it um the state is much more violent than any anarchist ever has been in history uh the state uh, states in the 20th century killed 200 million people and that's the very conservative estimate um so from the state's perspective anarchism is a very dangerous philosophy but uh to most people it's completely harmless do you believe in voting um I don't vote, but I also don't take a principled opposition to it uh, either. Like, I, I don't think that if I don't think if someone votes that they're inherently like legitimizing the system. I think you can vote in defense. Um, I, I personally, I personally find other means. Like, I I, I think that uh, certainly I think voting locally is probably more effective than voting like in a federal election or something like that. Um, but I, I certainly think that there are other ways to essentially like help your community, let's say, than voting. I think voting is just like I think Michael Miles says that that voting is essentially sending like a a letter to Santa, essentially like saying, hey, please, (laughs) please do this. Um, But it has much actually much less of an effect. Right. So like you can vote, but you can't really control the outcomes. Right. You can only like try to pressure the politicians in one way or another. But of course, there's other pressures when the politicians actually get into office that kind of counteract whatever pressure there they might feel from their constituents. Right um i i don't oppose it on principle though like if there's a referendum to like legalize um uh drugs in a certain place i would think that yeah if you're a libertarian you should actually absolutely, absolutely go and vote for that i don't see a downside for like voting in that sense
0: do you describe yourself as an anarchist or an anarcho-capitalist
1: yeah. uh i i tend to just go anarchist i i think um it, i i don't disagree with the anarcho-capitalist like very very much at all but i i tend to just go straight for straight with anarchists because i feel like when i'm talking to people capitalist can be such a charged term that everyone kind of has a different understanding of it so i prefer just to express my concepts in as clear language as possible and of course anarchist is also you know riddled with a lot of conceptions. so in some sense we're kind of screwed on our terminology here um, at the start but i think that um i I prefer to try to explain the concepts in a way that has the least amount of like emotionally charged language
0: of course when you say you're an anarchist or even a libertarian Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes people will you know, give you some pushback and and that's to be expected. You know, a common one is, well, you enjoy uh, driving on those roads, huh? How would we have the roads if it wasn't for, uh, (laughs) you know, the government, that type thing? So I assume that's Hmm. um, equivalent to, you know, a a softball. I'm sure you've heard that many times. My question to you, Ace, is what is one of the more challenging questions that you get and you, you're forced to defend when it comes to anarchy.
1: ooh okay. Uh, challenging in the sense that I don't have a really good answer to it or challenging in the sense that a lot of people just like really harp on it. Um, hmm both okay um, I, I think I, I think one of like the the this isn't unique anarchism, but I certainly think it's it's a it's a good critique is like, well what do we do with like the nuclear weapons? Uh, Right. That's always a good one. Um, Truthfully, I I don't have a great answer to this. And but but also um, the answers we currently have aren't great either. Like one one senile old man having control of the nuclear codes isn't a great (laughs) isn't a great thing to end up with in the first place. So I think this is one of those where it's like the existence of nuclear weapons in the in at all kind of like puts people in a very uh, tough position of answering these types of questions. Um, So I think that's one good critique. I think another would probably be uh, and and I think like there's an I I feel comfortable in the answer to this, but I feel like for a lot of people, this is like a sticking point, which would be like, well, how do we like what about courts and police? Right. How do we resolve or what about security in general? Um, um, So oftentimes one of the criticisms is that, well, under anarchism, uh, a force stronger than you can just come and take your property anyway. Right. So like um, at least with the state. Uh, We can defend ourselves against people who come to try to take our property. But of course, this is only half of the dilemma because the problem with that is the state is The very warlord, I guess you could say, that is going to try to establish itself over you and take your property in the first place. Now, maybe some people could come back with that and say that, well, yeah, but it's a more peaceful warlord in general. Like we have more uh, consistency. We know what to expect from them. And that, you know, there's certainly a case you could make there. But I I think um, one of the problems with the idea that, well, anarchism is inherently unstable because it could just be taken over by another force dominating them. I think the problem with that argument is that uh, another state could take over an, another state as well, right? So whatever your whatever someone's preferred uh, state is, uh, another state, a rival state, could just come and take over that state. So while the criticism isn't unfair to anarchism, it's not unique to it either. Um, all, all social organization has this problem of what if someone else come who's stronger than us uh, comes to take our stuff, and I of course, the strongest force doesn't always win, right? Um, all, very rarely are all other things equal to where the strongest force would win. Um, you can take like examples of like decentralized, asymmetric warfare, like you know, um, at at look at how uh, the U.S. Uh, forces did in Afghanistan, for example or like any other like historical examples where the strongest force is repelled by a more like asymmetric guerrilla war- warfare. Um, and in fact, I, I would stress this point particularly because oftentimes, um, if you think about it, there's actually more reason to believe that a decentralized, uh, defensive force is preferable to a centralized one. And let me give an example. I don't think China is going to invade the US, certainly, but let's just say hypothetically they are intent on it, right? Now you let's take a tale of two Americas. America one has no government whatsoever. It's just decentralized militias all the way through the territories, right? The the landmass we call the United States right now uh, has no like central government. It's all just like cooperating militias, like, you know, but they're their own separate thing. Um and then let's take the other tale of America which is the America we have right now where power is centralized specifically in Washington DC um if China were to invade um if China were to invade uh, America 1 that has no federal government and it's just militias decentralized all over the place and China wanted to t- like take over the landmass of the United States they'd have to take over all all the territories within the US right there's no central point where they could just lay down their flag and claim victory right um, whereas if they invaded the America of today, uh, they could theoretically take over Washington, D.C. and hold all the other territories hostage from that. Right. Because obviously, you know, you have the centralized nuclear codes Um A lot of things uh, are more likely to go wrong in a centralized system where when you have one point of failure in a a single system, um, that reverberates all the way down the chain. Whereas a decentralized system, right, you have that famous quote where it's like, invading America is impossible because there'd be a gun behind every blade of grass. So I think a decentralized resistance is actually much preferable to a centralized one.
0: Okay, I'm trying to think of... um criticisms of anarchy that i have heard um i guess in an anarchist society and you probably don't like to use the word like utopia i assume right you Mm -hmm. don't you don't want me to say anarchist utopia you don't like
1: that right i I, i'm fine with you saying it like i i don't i don't describe it as a utopia uh personally but in your anarcho world if
0: we if we did not have a state Um, it was not voluntary, you know, if we had, Mm -hmm. let's say the United States was, um, more of an anarchist society, it would Mm -hmm. be perfectly fine for someone to, let's say I opened a business and I said, I don't want any Asians to come Mm -hmm. into my business. I put up a sign in the window, no Asians allowed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you see that as being a problem?
1: Um, I, I think it might be like a social problem, but it wouldn't be a legal one. Right like you, that you would be free to do it. Um, so you, you'd be completely free to do what you want with your property, um, but people are also free to respond to that, right? So the free market isn't just, a lot of people tend to think that the free market is just like being pro business, but it's not. Um, the, the free uh, people who advocate free markets are people who advocate the m- interaction, the peaceful interaction between people in the market. So like, for example, while it, you'd be absolutely free to do that, Um, people would also be free to like boycott you or or, like socially ostracize you and things like that. Um, So I I think that there's, so people who are worried about that, it's, it's not that, you know, something, something to uh, realize is that just because we believe someone has a right to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be a good thing to do. Right. I have a, I have a right to do a lot of stupid things, let's say, but it might not necessarily be good for me or good for like my community at large. If I did them. Okay.
0: Um, a topic that comes to mind for me would be like Warren Jeffs. <laughs> Warren Jeffs uh, was one of the fundamental uh, Mormons. I think from fun- Fundamental uh, Church mm-hmm. of Latter Day Saints. Whatever I forget what the exact acronym is, um, but a, a kind of a bizarre little uh, religion society that involves um, really uh, you know pedophilia and, and mm-hmm. very very disturbing practices. How would an anarchist society I can't even say regulate, but how would something like that be dealt with? Would it kind of be like, well, those people are free to do what they want. Those are their children, you know, that type of thing. Yeah.
1: No, the the anarchist position is uh, basically like you're free to do what you want with your body and with your property, but you're not free to do what you want with other people and their property, right? So in regards to children, I would not regard children as just a person's property. I think they're, I, I think they're, I think children have rights, but they're limited in scope um, because they're not like fully rational adults. But but they still have a right not to be like molested, right, or anything like that. So, yeah, uh, pedophilia um, would be an actionable offense in an anarchist society, absolutely. Who would enforce that, though? Um, anyone who wants to, and I know that's kind of like a lot of people aren't satisfied with that answer. But kind of the basis of anarchism is this idea that. Every there's not a, a single monopolist who has the legal authority to act uh, in in a right way. If it's justified to act, if I'm justified in acting a certain way, you would be justified in acting that way too. Um, so, uh, right. So if if um, if there's some murderer going around murdering people. Um, i'm justified in stopping him you're justified in stopping him anyone is and truthfully speaking there would be institutions because there's an e- because justice has an economic incentive tied to it right most people don't want to live in a world where their property uh, can just be taken from them at any given time where they can just be like assaulted um things like that or murdered or killed um so people there's an economic incentive for security to, uh, um, to arise and also because it's because there's no monopoly these agencies have an incentive to actually do a good job because if they don't do a good job, just like other firms on the market, their competitor or their, um, their um, the, 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 essentially their competitors will take the market share from them. Right. So like their customers will go elsewhere. Um, And there's also, it it also doesn't necessarily even have to be um, like some people claim. Well, well, I don't want to jump to another topic. Sorry. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you go ahead before I like jump to something else. No, that's okay. You you take it where you'd like to. I I was just going to say that some people think that, well, uh, another objection I think people would have from this or the next objection would be like, well, what about the poor, right? Because this is probably, I think this is probably one of the most common, top three for sure, criticisms for anarchism. Because right now we could say that, look, the state provides certain social safety nets and these people um, uh, just need some help, right? It's not like they're not bad people. They're just down on their luck. They're downtrodden. just they just need help and i think this is probably the most um uh relatable critique for a lot of people i feel a a lot of people get on board with this critique but it's like yeah why why can't we have some social safety net well I, i i think implicit in that question is or in that critique is this idea that anarchism doesn't have or wouldn't have any social safety nets um so while it's true that anarchism doesn't formally allow people to um you know uh, steal money and and use it to, and redistribute it. People are certainly free to voluntarily pool their own resources together um, and pay for services that they wouldn't be able to afford individually. And in fact, there's a historical precedent for this called mutual aid societies or mutual aid associations or fraternities, right? Where uh, people would um, essentially uh, poor people would essentially uh, pool their resources together and they would um, create these mutual aid associations. That would essentially provide either security, um, housing in some sense, medical care, Um, and this was in like um, this was in the great during the Great Depression, for example. One in three people, um, or I think one in four to one in three people, were a part of at least one mutual aid association at this time. And um, why we don't see them anymore today, um, and why we kind of see a bastardized version of them in um, uh, with insurance, is. essentially the government, uh, w- w- so when these mutual aid societies would contract, right, they would contract out doctors individually to give this mutual aid society medical care. But the problem was these doctors were competing for these contracts, which me- meant that the doctor's wages, uh, their salary uh, was going down because they were competing with each other to see who would like be awarded this contract to like give medical services to this is the mutual aid association. Um, a lot of doctors did not like this and they petitioned the government to essentially um, have stricter regulations on this because they felt they weren't being paid enough, especially, you know, for these downtrodden poor people um, that they felt were sort of beneath them. Uh, it's, it's really kind of gross when you like read the historical account of this. Um, so they created the AMA, the American Medical Association, and they used licensing and other regulations to essentially say that, look, if you try to work with these mutual aid associations will strip you of your license and you won't be able to work officially as a doctor anymore, uh, in practices. So th- this was essentially the creation of a cartel. And this is the main reason why medical prices in the United States are so high is because there's a complete lack of competition because everything is being, uh, uh strangled from the, from the government and from the AMA essentially. Um, and, um, so insurance is often like a touchy topic because like everyone hates insurance companies for good reason a lot of the time, but, um, but there's a, a good version of insurance that exists in a free market. Um, uh, whereas right now what we have is a captive market and that, and the the price system or the healthcare system in America really reflects that because, uh, things would not normally cost this much. So I, I think that's probably one of the best arguments actually for anarchism is that look, um, all these things that you don't like about this current, like, quote unquote, capitalistic model um, would be solved by a true free market.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm actually a health insurance broker. That's my nine, oh, to, okay. nine to five job. So I get to see, you know, if I have, a let's say, a 45-year-old male mm-hmm. comes to me and says they need health insurance, I'll say, well, you know, we could do the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. regulated plans, which... I mean, and I tell them right up front, those plans suck. I mean, they they suck really bad. So I'm not going to, a big part of my job is basically saying, this plan sucks. I can sign you up for it, but just keep in mind, it's Mm going to be an expensive monthly premium, a very expensive, you know, a very high annual deductible, unless you're completely broke. Now there are some exceptions. So if your income's real low, you know, we can get you onto some relatively good valued plans, but it Mm -hmm. is not consistent with what you said, Ace, it is not just a free market. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Another thing that I think is consistent with what you said is Ron Paul. I've heard him talk about, um, I don't know if it was in the 60s or 70s when he was Mm -hmm. delivering all these babies in Texas. Um, He said that the poor people would come and would be, uh, get their medical care through this church, organization that was, I think, coordinated with a local hospital. So it was not the welfare state that was taking care of the poor. It was basically voluntary contributions to a church organization that then took in however many poor people and just took care of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, um, so there's often, I, I think one of the awful effects of the state is that it really reduces the reliance on community, right? So Um, One example of this is obviously um, a person who pays taxes has less incentive or feels less drive to actually help people in their community directly because they think, oh, well, my I pay my taxes. That's supposed to go to help poor people. So I don't need to go out of my way to help this poor person I see in front of me. Right. Um, Or it, it just kind of like. Removes the burden that people would normally feel to actually be active in their community and help people uh, by outsourcing it to the state, which does a terrible job of it, mind you. It's um, and it's not merely like well, we just need to elect better people. The problems are inbuilt into like the DNA of the state itself because it's a monopoly. It has no incentive to actually produce good results. In fact, the worst results the state produces the more money it gets because they say, well, Hey, we just need to keep fixing, trying to fix this problem. Give us more money. Oh, it didn't work. Uh, we need more money. And it's this constant, constant domino effect where it's like it's a race to the bottom. Right? So like, uh, on a free market, obviously, if you, if, if people give you money and you don't do what you're going to say, or you don't fix the problem or do a good job, um, that incentivizes another person to fix the problem better. And they're, Oh, you're out of business now. Right. Um, so, uh, that's just one of the inherent problems with the state, right? The same reason you don't want a monopoly in other services is the reason why you should not want a monopoly at all.
0: Makes sense. Um, this is a another random question, but Ace, mm-hmm. I know you don't vote. You don't particularly believe in voting, at least not for yourself. Um, yeah. I live here in Kentucky. Of course, mm-hmm. we have Thomas Massey in the Congress. We have Rand Paul in yeah. the Senate. Would you agree... When it comes to congressmen and members of the Senate, those are the two, arguably the two, who are about the closest to supporting your type of ideals as exist in the United States.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, I I really like Massey, and I think – I think Rand Paul's work, uh, specifically, uh, specifically, especially about um, NSA spying and the drone program, I think were like Rand Paul's best moments um, ever. Um, and also, like you know, grilling Fauci was great. Uh, so I think I think there's a lot to really respect from those men and what they've done.
0: I also liked when Rand Paul was grilling. Who was it about the Ministry of Truth? Oh, yeah. That was good where he just starts listing all these historical. He says the United States government is the biggest purveyor of, uh, uh, you know, um, dishonesty in the history of humanity. (laughs) I mean, he just ripped into a couple people. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. Now, it brings up an interesting conversation. Rand Paul, for example, is working within the system. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you and I got him behind closed doors and we were not recording the conversation, Mm -hmm. maybe he would agree with a lot of the things we're talking about, but Mm -hmm. he would simply say, Ace, Kelly, I get it, but in order for me to be (laughs) in the Senate, I have to Mm -hmm. compromise on a few things here and there, and therefore I can then be the most you know libertarian or anarchist centric uh member of the Mm -hmm. senate would you agree that's probably his strategy
1: i I would agree with that probably yeah i I think I, i think um a lot of the people who like the rare people who actually espouse like some libertarian uh messaging in their like uh political action i guess are probably more libertarian than like they actually like are when they're in public let's say
0: Okay. A very interesting topic because, of course, it seems to me that people who have views like you or, or like Michael Malice or Dave Smith or, or um, you know, so many people in this little world, I think it's actually a bigger world uh, or a bigger percentage of the country than, than mm. maybe we realize. It's just there's so many different ways to go about implementing Uh, These types of strategies that it's almost like it's not really organized and it's not a specific political party. And so it's it's difficult to see that there's, you know, specific traction or or, um, any headway made in that direction.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think the um, and I think Michael Mouse has talked about this and I think he has a really good point here where it's like anarchism is not like a place. it's a it's a relationship, right. So my relationship to the state is not anarchic, but our relationship right now, where we're speaking together in a voluntary manner is right I'm not ruling over you, you're not ruling over me and we're coming together through a mutual arrangement to talk to each other, right And I think um, most people, are interact as anarchists, like 99% of their lives, right? Most people are not out there, um, like violently assaulting, stealing, you know, encroaching upon people's property or bounds. Um, most people. And I think one of the attractive things for anarchism is uh, to say that, look, the, the moral system that most people live by, right? This idea that you know, we're taught this as children don't hit, don't steal, um, this is the anarchist uh, system as well. We just take it to what we, we see as the logical conclusion, which is like, hey, we, we both agree that it would be wrong for me to hit you right now and you to hit me or me to steal from you or you to steal from me. So why are these people who are just people like us? Why do they have the right to take from us? So I, I think a lot of people... Um, do inherently understand that in on an intuitive level, but there's some type of cognitive dissonance where they see the state as something else, something that where they have the right to do things that n- you and I would never have the right to do to each other. Um, so I, I do think that um, there that is why I think anarchism and libertarianism has been able to grow is because we've been able to like kind of um, plant seeds in people's minds, starting from their own moral basis, working up. Um, So I I do think there's like a lot of um, progress there.
0: The topic of optimism or lack thereof within Mm -hmm. this little community is fascinating to me. I've heard um, Dave Smith articulated that one time, I think he had his first interview ever with Ron Paul, something Mm -hmm. like that. And Ron Paul turned to him and said, all right, Dave, are you optimistic? Mm -hmm. And he, he kind of froze up and he said, you know, yes, I am. And Ron said, yeah, like that, a boy. You have to be optimistic. I don't. Yeah. So I almost was questioning myself when I heard that. Like, was Ron I- advising him you don't want to be a negative Nancy because that's not very marketable? Um, and nobody wants to hear somebody just constantly whining about how bad everything sucks. Mm-hmm. But on, on the same token, I do think there are some ways where society is headed in a good direction. The past couple of years arguably has woken up hopefully, many, many people to the idea that the government is inherently evil, uh, basically yeah. at every turn. Um, so that must be, I guess you would say, a little bit of a a, a white pill for many people Absolutely. for reason, reason to be optimistic. What do you think of my description of the topic of being either pessimistic or optimistic from a liberty or an anarcho uh, uh, perspective?
1: No, I, I think that's dead on because I, I feel like a lot of people like i can understand why someone could be pessimistic right you can look around the world and you can like like wow that's a lot of really bad things happening in the world right now um there's a lot of things going in a lot of directions that just don't seem productive to libertarianism um like someone can look at the COVID lockdowns like wow um this is the first time where i've really seen how much of a prisoner i really am right that type of thing so i can completely understand why people are pessimistic Um, at the same time, um, this, this relates to an Emma Goldman. She was an anarchist, um, famously deported by Woodrow Wilson, actually, which is interesting. Um, she has this, she had this quote where she's like, the the cops are making more anarchists than I ever could. Um, and I think that's true, right? I think anarchists generally, um, like are, turn like are woken up at least like right you may plant the seeds in someone's mind but that sprout doesn't grow until the state waters it by oppressing you or or showing you at like oppression like right in front of your face so i think that's sort of like how this gets turned on so there's always some silver lining to be had and i think you don't want to be pessimistic because look um the, the, the fight between like liberty versus tyranny has been going on uh, since the dawn of man. Right. It, it's like it's not this like singular we win and then we win. It's a constant struggle. But with that being said, it tends to I do think there's a tendency towards liberty on the long scale of time. Right. Think of slavery. Uh, chattel slavery was a thing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And uh, most people had no problem with it. They saw it as completely justified. Uh, And now look at it, it's gone. And now almost no one would view chattel slavery as justified. Makes sense. Yeah,
0: definitely headed in a good direction in so many different ways. For some reason, this topic really does intrigue me because I interview many different people from different Mm -hmm. perspectives, Uh, of course, through a liberty-centric, um, mm-hmm. you know, lens. I, I, I've spoken a couple times with Pete Quinones, mm-hmm. And some people would describe him as being almost like black-pilled. Like he's mm-hmm. not as optimistic, maybe, about some of the, the you know, for example, the Mises caucus takeover. He doesn't see any purpose in uh, directing all your energy. Even Mark Claire and guys like that, too, they would agree that, uh, you know, Putting all this energy into the Mises Caucus, taking over the Libertarian Party may not be the best use of energy to, to head the, you know, to point the country in a direction uh, of liberty. But then you have people like uh, uh, Dave Smith, you hear him, of course, his his solution right now is more so through democracy or Larry Sharp. Uh, you have guys like that who I guess they're trying to implement a, a liberty uh, direction through democracy, which almost sounds like um, counterintuitive or, or whatever, where it's like, okay, well, you're an anarchist, but you're going to use democracy. doesn't make much right. sense. So there's so many different strategies, but the topic of whether or not you should be optimistic and uh, even whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, um, regardless of that, uh, how you can positively impact everything. Earlier, you, you mentioned that, Outside of voting, you feel you can positively impact things in other ways. I guess my question to you is: What's your solution? How can someone listening? How can you? How can I? How can people direct positively impact our society in a liberty or anarcho-centric direction?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think oftentimes, this like um, going to like what you were saying about like how there's some skepticism with the Mises Caucus. I think that skepticism is fair but i I don't i I think one of the problems with it is um we we don't really know what the strategy what the most efficient use of our time is in terms of strategy right like there's no one way you know there's no one way to skin a cat there's no one way to turn someone from you know uh, a believer in the state to a libertarian or anarchist right a lot of people have a lot of come to it through a lot of different avenues so um, While well, one per- it might be efficient to, um, uh, you know, go through the political means for one person that might onboard them, um, it might be completely different for another person. So maybe one person is more focused on community activism or, or just something, you know. Um, so so uh, I, uh, there's a lot of different ways. And the truth is the fact that we don't know what the best strategy is. In some sense, it's going to sound cliche, but we should kind of let the market decide in this regard. Where um, we should just see what the um, outcomes of these strategies are, and then recalibrate afterwards. Um, as far as what we can do, uh, what like what you can do outside of voting, I, I think oftentimes one of the reasons people cling to the state so hard is that they just they are not able to like picture like how an anarchist system would work, and I, I completely sympathize with that. Right, like it's 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 kind of like this esoteric thing, at least at this point in time. So it can be kind of hard for people to imagine how it could work. So I think one of the best things you can do as an anarchist is one, remain positive and, and two, show people that you're not a threat to them because you can talk to people all the time about like logical arguments and try to convince them that you're, you know, you're correct in your logical argument. But if they, th- if they see you as a threat, they're just not going to be perceptive to your messaging at all. So you kind of have to come to people like within your community to say, Hey, I'm not a threat to you. Uh, I-, I-, I want to help you. And not in like, you know, a, a demeaning way or because I know that a lot of people can kind of frame it as like, I'm here to save you or something like that. Uh, not in that way, but more in a, I want to, I just want what's best for you.
0: There, There's some different parts of the liber- liberty messaging that can be difficult to present to the masses. Um, the concept of completely mm. being anti-war. I, I've had trouble with talking to people about Um, For some reason, so many people in our country are conditioned to believe that we have to, you know, whether it's to go in and and help out Ukraine or uh, uh, whatever foreign uh, interventionism uh, uh, type Mm -hmm. activity we're doing. It's amazing to me, Ace, where so many people are just completely (laughs) sold on we're not being attacked here in the United States at all. We're Mm -hmm. not. But they think it makes sense for our con- country to continue to, whether it's print out more money or go further into debt, to help some country yeah. accru- literally on the other side of the world. Um, that, to me, is a difficult obstacle.
1: Yeah. I, I think the state plays on a lot of people's like good intentions, right? Because I think there's a, a deep like, base um, intention that people have, um, an intuition that they have that people are hurting We should do something right and i can i can obviously sympathize with that um that plight but i I think one of the problems with it is that um when you're talking about military intervention you're not just talking about this like you know um saturday morning cartoon where we're going to send the good guys in they're going to take out the bad guys and they're going to free the victims right um that is not how warfare generally goes um especially um also you know we, we can't ignore the fact that um two nuclear superpowers uh, engaged in open conflict is not a great strategy, even if you think the cause is just. Um, so one, one of the ways I think we need to always reframe it is that it, we're, we're not opposed to people in those territories defending themselves. And frankly, we're not necessarily even opposed to individuals like if, you, if someone wants to go over there and defend the people of Ukraine, I think that person should be free to do that. Um, and more power to them. But sending in a United States military to defend this is going to cause more harm than it solves. Right? Um, the collateral damage, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan, is uh, uncountable. Um, so, so I, I think um, it always needs to focus on the individuals. Like, look, if you en- if you bring over another military to engage in this military conflict, more innocent people are going to die in the crossfire. Um, And it's not to say that. Well, you know, what about all the individuals suffering in Ukraine? Yeah, they are suffering from an aggressor, too. So we we can still say we can still defend the rights of the people who are being encroached upon and still say at the same time, uh, sending the U.S. in there is going to likely to hurt those people more than it helps much more likely to given the history of um, military involvement, especially for the United States.
0: Great stuff, Ace. I believe you are the co-host of the end. Uh, the end. Yes, the end ahead. times continue podcast. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a it's a podcast I recently start started um, uh, with me and my friend uh, Dino uh um and essentially we're just like talking about things it's not we're not like we don't have a niche necessarily like we're not like high we we're not a topical podcast we talk about topics Uh, but it's basically like we're just brain we just brainstorm on the podcast we talk about whatever we want but we also try to tie it into current events sometimes too and tie that and then tie those current events into like maybe some philosophy some philosophy of some kind somewhere so that's sort of the uh, the gist of the podcast. And of course, you
0: can be followed on Twitter at Ace underscore Arcist. Uh, before we wrap yes. things up, Ace, are there any other plugs or mentions you'd like to get in?
1: Uh, yeah, um, you can follow my uh, Substack at Ace Arcist uh, no underscore AceArcist dot Substack dot com. Um, I should have a new um, article out detailing like an anarchism 101, um, type article fairly soon. Um, so that that's coming, uh, and beyond that, just thank you so much for inviting me.
0: I love it. Ace. Thank you very much. I look forward to hopefully speaking with you again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you. I'd
1: love to. Yes, sir. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you.
0: I want to thank everyone for tuning into the Kelly Patrick show. Of course, we'll have another episode out soon.